So today I'm continuing the series, the series, We're All in This Together, Interdependence, about at the very bottom of reality, this relationship. That relationship binds us each to the other all throughout and in so many different ways in our lives. And the way that we've been doing this is we've sort of been going step by step using this little picture of concentric circles. Last week we talked about self, we talked about our own experience in terms of our own interdependence with our personal past. Today we're going to talk about community, and then world, and then ultimately spirit. Now today, in talking about community, I thought when I devised this message series that actually this might be the easiest, the easiest one to preach about, the easiest one to write about and talk about. Because just historically, obviously it's true. We come from families and tribes and groups and clans and nations. We belong to community. We're a part of community. It's a basic truth about who we are. And yet the challenge in talking about interdependence and community this morning is that community is so much more fluid than it once was. And I'll take us back just a second to our singing of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. One of the reasons we chose a minor league ball game is because of interdependence. Well, that and also price. We thought if we were going to a major league game asking you to shell out $45 just for the ticket and then $10 each for parking and then if you wanted beer or hot dogs or peanuts, you know, that can get a little pricey after a while. But really it's about the community aspect. It's about the community aspect of minor league baseball. One of the cool things is I was at a Reading Phillies game about, I want to say three, three and a half years ago and I saw Ryan, Had- Ryan Howard right after, he's the Philly slugger for those of you who aren't major league baseball fans, standing outside right after the game signing autographs until the last person wanted one. He was right there. That's the great thing about minor league baseball is that it is so much based on the community and the experience of the community. Major league baseball used to be like this as well. I was born in the borough of Brooklyn, Brooklyn Dodgers, dem bums as they used to call them. And they were horrible. They won one World Series before they left to go to Los Angeles. But they were absolutely beloved, beloved by the community of Brooklyn. And the reason was that the players lived and practiced and worked right in the midst of the community in which they were baseball players. They were integrated into the community. Now, that doesn't really exist anymore. The reason for that is free agency. And I do have to say, as someone who studied the history of baseball quite a lot, it's a good thing that we have free agency. It actually makes it more competitive, not less. I know you might say, for those of you who know I'm a Yankee fan, well, of course you're going to say that. It's true. It's true. It makes the game more competitive. And for in that time before free agency, it basically was a form of well-paying indentured servitude. People did not have the freedom to decide who they were going to play for. And to extend that baseball metaphor, the last 20, 30, 40 years, we are all, many of us, free agents now. The things that used to mark us and hold us into community, ethnicity and race, culture, geography, the profession you had, the idea that you might work for one company your entire professional life, by the way, how many, is that true of anyone here? Has any of you, those of you who've been working, working outside the home professionally, have you worked for one entire company your entire professional life? Okay, Whew. I was trying to test that out and just hope it would prove my point. It did. We move around a lot is the easiest way to say it. We move around a lot. We're a highly, highly mobile society. And with that comes a lot more choice. And for some people, that choice is a really scary thing. For some people, and you know them, you can find them on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC, and they're the person who's representing the cultural right, and they're saying, you know what? Back then was just, oh, such a simpler time. It was such a better time. It's that nostalgia for a time that frankly never really exists, and even if it did, it frankly wasn't all that great to begin with. 
We have so many people in our culture saying we're always going to hell in a handbasket. That every community that comes upon the earth, every age is always the worst it's ever been. And if only we could get back, get back to some imaginary time when kids were safe and everyone was healthy and everyone loved their neighbors and there was no violence and blah, blah, blah. You know, that wasn't true. There never was a time such as this. And that kind of nostalgia for an imaginary time, well, it doesn't help us when we're trying to solve the problems of our time and our place. So it is true that we are much more highly mobile than we used to be. And there are blessings to this and there are curses. People have been decrying the erosion of community for a very, very long time. I'm going to share with you one of the most famous stories from a time before our own, although I imagine some of you were probably alive at that time. Probably one of the most famous stories of its time about the erosion of community. How many of you know the name Kitty Genovese? Kitty Genovese. Okay, some of you have heard of that. That was, in the early 1960s, the most notorious murder, the most notorious killing. Kitty Genovese was a young woman who was coming home late at night from work in the community of Kew Gardens, Queens, in the... New York City, and what happened was she was, I'm not going to go into the gory details because they really are awful, she was killed in an attack that lasted about 35 minutes. She was attacked and yelled out for help, and then the person who attacked her fled, but no one came to her aid. What happened in this story is that ultimately, when she died, it was assumed that there were as many as 38 witnesses 38 multiple witnesses who heard her crying out at some point and did not, did not come to aid her. Now, for people in the early 1960s, especially for those folks who lived in New York City, this was a sign of the indifference, the callousness, the moral lack of community and center and structure that marked their time. The New York Times actually started what they called an apathy beat as a result of this. They had a beat that was dedicated to talking about the stories of people's indifference to each other. And so for them at that time, a lot of people said community is fraying. There's nothing that holds us together anymore. But there were two academic psychologists at the time who said, actually, it's not really about the lack of community. They came up with a very counterintuitive idea. It wasn't that she was killed in spite of so many people watching. What they said is, ironically, she was killed because, because so many people were there and there were so many witnesses. It is because we are interdependent, because we are so closely tied together, perhaps that she died. The first is a simple thing, if you think about it. Well, I suppose someone else called, so I don't have to. Sort of moving responsibility on down the line. Well, someone must have called. They must have heard this. I don't have to. I'm not moved to. But there's another even deeper reason that gets at the heart of our interdependence, of the ways in which we work as a community, as a system, as people who take their cues from each other. What these psychologists said is that when one person failed to act, and because this really happened in a courtyard of a building, and other people could see that there were other lights on and people had their televisions blaring, one neighbor might have looked at another neighbor, not just have looked at the murderer, hear hear their cries for help that were happening, but actually looked at their fellow people. What they saw was people behaving normally. And that was such a powerful influence that they themselves behaved normally, as if nothing was going on and nothing was going wrong. No one in that position felt strong enough to move beyond how powerful those social cues are. Think about it. 
Think about that old children's fable, The Emperor's New Clothes. The Emperor, of course we all know it. It's funny when you read it. The Emperor's naked. And yet all those stupid people, all those stupid people, they won't just see. Come on, call the Emperor naked and get over it. But that's how powerful social cues can be, especially in the face of someone or something who holds power. Well, Emperor's not naked. That's the best cloak I've ever seen. And then it continues on down the valley, whisper down the valley, except it says the same thing from one person to another to another. It's one of the reasons they call uh, one of those videos that shows up on YouTube and one person posts it and then another person posts it and pretty soon five million people have seen it. Viral video. That's about our interdependence. That's about the, the connections that we have between each other. There's a funny example of this. I wasn't able to find it. I wanted to show it to you, but maybe some of you know it. It's a Comcast commercial for high-speed internet, and one person is on their computer at work, and what happens is they're really, really slow. They don't have Comcast, so we're led to believe. And that one person takes his anger out on someone who, very in a chipper fashion, stops by and says, Hey, Frank, how you doing? Urgh. And then she takes that, er, and she levels an elbow at the next person he runs into. And then two steps down the line, the entire office has become like Lord of the Flies. (laughs) Nature red and tooth and claw. Now that's a funny example, and it's trying to get you to buy a product. But what it's really talking about is the way that we as human beings are so attuned to each other. Our communities are interdependent. We do look to each other for leadership. We do we do recognize how we react and how we respond and take our own, not all the time, but often take our own cues for how we are to respond. And so actually because of this, leadership in an interdependent world is incredibly important. The way that our society often talks about leadership is that it's the one, the one standing up in front of other people who's the leader. It is the great man or the great woman. It is the one who inspires all. It is Martin Luther King. And not that he was not. Of course he was. But we forget the people in the streets who marched as well. We forget that leadership exists on so many different levels. In an interdependent world, all of us and all of you are called on to be leaders. It is not about waiting for the single bestest, brightest, most wonderful person to lead you. All of us are called into leadership because all of our actions count in community. In interdependence, it's not about independence. It's not about saying what I do doesn't affect other people. What you do and what we do affects people wonderfully and also can affect people in some very poor ways. The importance when we talk about leadership in a system, a community, a religious community, could be your families. There's a word that a lot of psychologists use. It's called self-differentiation. Self-differentiation. It's the ability to be yourself fully in the situation, to be yourself fully, to be grounded. And actually, I want to show you an example. We talked about the Genovese murder. That's an example of interdependence that, frankly, wasn't very positive at all. It was quite hurtful. But I want to show you a positive example of what leadership in an interdependent world really means. Horton hears a who. Now, we all know Horton Hears a Who. This is obviously the recent cartoon dramatized version of it. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant, and elephants faithful 100%. Say it with me. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant, and elephants faithful 100%. See, what Horton's really doing here is an amazing act of leadership, even though it's just between two people. But actually, you know what's held in that clover. It's all those little who's that no one else can hear other than Horton. Their lives are at stake. 
And what happens in this community is it becomes really anxious. They start thinking that Horton's crazy. He's seeing, he's seeing things. He's hearing people that really aren't there. They doubt his sanity and they doubt whether he has the right to try and protect them. And you see the little, I don't know, muskrat or something like that, whatever he is. He's blue. I guess he really doesn't exist in nature. But he comes up to Horton and he's anxious. He's worried. He says, we got to do something. We got to do something. We got to... What's it like to be confronted by someone who's that anxious? Especially when they're telling us that we're in danger. And what Horton does, he stays grounded. He says, it's not just a matter... It's not just a matter, as we heard, of protecting the who's. It's a matter of his own character. Faithful 100%. He is self-differentiated because he is grounded. He's able to meet the anxiety of those around him, even someone who's trying to help him, and say, I'm not going to react. I'm not going to be angry or fearful as well. I'm going to be grounded in the most important part of my identity, which means to be a person or in this case, an elephant, who can be there for others. What he's really saying is the old cliche, which I love, which is that if we believe in nothing, we will fall for absolutely anything. If we believe in nothing, we will fall for absolutely anything. Peter Steinke, who's a Lutheran minister and has written a lot about congregational systems and family systems. Very often we heard the word the system as sort of synonymous with the man. It's only a bad thing. But we all exist within systems. We all exist within communities. One of the things that Peter Steinke says is, if you're going to be a leader, and we're all called to be leaders within community, he says, do not go gently into that great glob of goo. (laughs) Do not go gently into that great glob of goo. That's what Horton resists right here. He has the opportunity to be angry or anxious, and he responds. He is grounded. You see, self-differentiation is not over-identification with someone's anger or their fear, and at the same time, it's not pulling back. It's a third choice that Horton really exhibits right here, saying, be grounded, be yourself, and offer the world your full presence. Not command and control, not try and shape everything in the system or in the community, and not dissolve either at the same, which is, frankly, I have to say, from my own personal past, probably much more likely what I'm, you know, going to do, dissolve into jelly, quaking, afraid. We're talking interdependence here, not codependence. Interdependence calls us to be most fully ourselves and at the same time stay in relationship. Be grounded, but also be there. Don't run away. Be there for other people. See, strong leadership is a matter of presence. It is a matter of saying, I am here and I am accessible and I am here for you and you are here for me. And together, without anger, without fear, without pushing each other away, we can remain together. Leadership in an interdependent world, it can come from anyone. It is not just about the one or those who seem to have the power. Think Rosa Parks. Think about the amazing leadership that she sowed simply by her act and because we are interdependent, what that act meant to her community and to her time. Think about that. One simple thing that spawned and helped a great peaceful revolution. One of my favorite stories of this kind of leadership that can come from anywhere and anyone is 
probably apocryphal story, but I still love it. It's about Paderewski, who was the great uh, pianist and composer. And it's about a mom and her nine-year-old son, Stephen, who go absolutely dressed to the nines, you know, black tail, big concert hall, and they're there to see the great Paderewski. And Stephen, man, he just, he is as itchy as he can be. He's sitting there, and the concert hasn't started yet, and it's dragging on, and it's dragging on, and it's dragging on. And the only thing, the only thing that holds little nine-year-old Stephen's attention is the great big Steinway piano. And as all the adults are sitting there talking to each other, waiting for the great Paderewski to come on and wow them, little Stephen somehow finds his way up the aisle, onto the stage, and sits down and starts playing chopsticks. And oh, the furor, the anger. What's that kid doing up here? Get him off there. Whose mother is that? Whose kid is that? Why is he there? Why is he there? This is so improper. This is so improper. And off stage, the great Paderewski hears the stir and wonders what is going on. And he comes out and he sees this little boy. You know, I can't actually sing chopsticks. I don't sing anything too well. Playing chopsticks. And what does Paderewski do? He goes behind the boy who's now seated and he improvises a counter melody and plays chopsticks along with him. And the entire room falls into a hush. That is leadership. And that is not just Paderewski's leadership. It is little nine-year-old Stephen's leadership as well. See, Paderewski wouldn't have ever been able to show that kind of creativity, frankly, the kind of on-the-spot creativity that is as wonderful a pianist as he was. It wouldn't have been possible if Stephen wouldn't have exited the crowd and gone up there and started playing as well, too. They both showed courage. They both showed creativity. And without one acting, the other would not have been able to act and respond. This is our vision of the kind of leadership that we hope for in our building here at Wellsprings where leaders emerge from all parts of our common life. And that is why we have a DNA, a grounding identity that allows all of us to say, it's not that we don't believe in nothing because we know we do believe in nothing. We will fall for anything and we will not raise up leaders. We will not raise up people who feel held in trust and interdependence to be able to grow. The true mark of a leader in a really healthy community is this simple thing. It is not how much you know, although that's part of it, It is not how much you can get other people to do what you want them to do. It is this. It is how you encourage other people to growth and into their own leadership. That is the mark of a true leader. How you develop their own leadership and their own gifts. Now, this is nothing new that we're working on here at Wellsprings. It is a very ancient teaching, over 2,000 years old. Paul writes about it in the Christian scriptures. He says the original early church is like this. It is one body, but it has many members. And each part of that body is called to live out its own part. It's about stewardship. It's about saying to the hand, be the best hand that you can be. And to the eye, see as clearly as you can. And to the heart, Be as strong and true and clear as you are able. One body, many members, bound together, being one people, but each doing their own thing while remaining related. See, at Wellsprings, we believe that our freedom finds its fulfillment 
and connecting with other people. Some of you have experienced this in your team. Some of you have experienced this in your leadership. Some of you have seen times when there is something that you yourself could not do and you find the next necessary person and they come along and the gifts and the ministries that you bring are made more complete. This is how community works at its best. When we find those interlocking places where we know that unto ourselves, we are not everything that we need. And yet when we find others, we become complete and whole. What this means even beyond spiritual community, and I hope you know this in your best relationships, is that I will never be fully me until I experience a we. I will never be fully me until I experience a healthy sense of we, of belonging, of being, of being a part of, a part of a people, a part of something greater than just ourselves. The I finds its place, the me finds its place within the larger we. Parker Palmer is one of my favorite Quaker teachers, puts it this way. He says the question, who I am, who am I? What am I doing here? Who I am? actually is answered with another question. Whose am I? Where do I belong? Where do I fit in with other people? See, relationship is the ultimate form of revelation. In doctrinal communities, it is as if revelation sort of falls down from the sky or comes from the book untouched by human hands. But really, it comes out of relationship. That is where revelation, the revealing of wisdom... That is where we get to know and we get to grow. And I have to say that revelation is most important. It is most meaningful when we feel we are not at our best, when life has in some ways ground us down or hurt us, or perhaps we are not feeling, not feeling that we have anything to give. It is at those times when the interdependent community that is there for each other reveals a power and a presence that so many of us need. I had a professor at Yale Divinity School. His name was Nicholas Waltersdorf, and he scared the crap out of me. He was, I don't know, even shorter than me. He was like five foot five. And he had this big shock of really wiry, Einstein-like hair. And he looked like a really, like a fireplug prophet. That's probably the best way I could describe it. He just was full of energy, this absolute intense academic energy. And he also was an analytic philosopher. And frankly, I was drawn to the continental philosophers. And whether that means nothing, I don't know. But, well, the analytic philosophers like numbers a lot more than I do. Let's put it that way. And so his classes, for me, always put me on edge. (laughs) Always put me on edge. And I never felt like I was exactly keeping up. And so I don't remember Professor Walter's doors, frankly, because he scared me. Although... That is part of it. But rather, I remember Professor Waltersdorf for what he loved. This amazing academic who wrote these dense tomes of theology, wrote a very simple book that, frankly, he will be remembered for by anyone who's ever read it more than any of his academic works. It's called Lament for a Son. You see, his son, Eric, I think 22, 23 years old, just graduated from college, graduate school, was out hiking had taken a trip to Europe, and they got a call in the middle of the night one night that Eric had fallen off the rock face, off a cliff, and had died. It was, of course, the most devastating news that any parents can get, a sudden, unexpected death of their beloved child. And Professor Waltersdorf, being a man of profound sensitivity, 
wrote a very, very simple book called Lament for a Son. And in it, he really talks about the power of presence. The power of being there for each other and of being there for each other interdependently, not above and not below, as a way and as a means of revelation in this life. Professor Waltersdorf writes it this way. What do you say to someone who is suffering? Some people are gifted with words of wisdom. And for one, and for these, one is profoundly grateful. But not all are gifted in that way. Some blurt out strange, inept things to us about Eric's death. And that's okay too. Your words don't need to be wise. The heart that speaks is heard more than the words that are spoken. And if you cannot think of anything to say, just say, I can't think of anything to say. But I want you to know that we are with you in your grief. Or even just embrace, just hug and just hold. You see, because not even the best of words can take away the pain. What words can do is testify that there is more than pain in our journey through this earth. Of those things that are more, the greatest is love. And so what do you say to someone who is suffering? Express your love. But please, please, don't say it's not really so bad. Don't say it's not really so bad because it is. If you think your task as a comforter is to tell me that really, all things considered, it's not so bad, then you do not sit with me in my grief, but place yourself off in the distance away from me. Over there, you are of no help to me. What I need to hear from you is that you recognize how painful it is. I need to hear from you that you are with me in my desperation. To comfort me, you have to come close. Come sit beside me on the morning bench. This is interdependence at its most powerful in our community. When we give each other permission to be whole, even when we are broken. When we make that promise, kind of like Horton, that says, whatever the words you choose, I will be here. I will not leave you. In your time of feeling abandoned, I will not abandon you. That is what self-differentiated people who are grounded in love and grounded in compassion are able to give people and a world that is often in hurting. A world that is often in hurting and in need of so much healing. A colleague of mine just told me recently that about 10, 15 years ago when she was doing ministry in another part of the country, a young woman came into her office at the end of the day, at the end of a Friday, just absolutely in the pits, absolutely just sort of at the end of herself, at the end of what she thought she could deal with. And they stayed and they talked for hours and the woman sort of went on her way and seemed to be doing better, but this minister never heard from her. And then just recently in the last year, this colleague told me about an interaction they had had with another colleague from another tradition. And when my colleague said her name, the other person she was talking to, her eyes lit up. She said, I know you. About 10 years ago, you had a conversation with a young woman who was at the end of a rope. That woman is now studying to be a minister. When she talks about what inspired her and who inspired her to enter ministry, it was you. It was you. This is what leadership is about. 
It is not about the ability to move chess pieces across the chessboard and to be able to say checkmate. Leadership is not about the capacity to get your will done. Although very often that's how we define it. Leadership is the recognition that who we are and what we do has amazing ramifications that will live far beyond any of our individual lives. Leadership is the ability, just like Horton, to say 100%. We may not always hit it, but that is our goal. Bring it back to baseball for a second. Joe DiMaggio was asked at the end of his long and illustrious career, why do you play so hard every day? Why do you play so hard every single day? And he said, because there is probably someone sitting out there in the stands that this is the first game they have ever attended. And they deserve my best. This is their one interaction with me. And I, being who I am, will promise them to do everything that I can to do my job the best. Now that's just sports. But the lesson applies to life. All of us are called into community. Not to do everything and not to be everything. But to be most fundamentally ourselves. And to recognize that what we might think is an insignificant interaction, in fact, can have echoes well, well, well beyond what we can control. In an interdependent community, absolutely none of us is in charge like an overlord, but all of us are called to be there for each other. I want to tell you this, and it's one of the most profound truths I know. None of you absolutely realize how profoundly great your influences in this life. Realize it and live it. Amen. May you live in blessing.